Well, hello, howdy, I hope you're well. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the nation. That is my real name, believe it or not. My father and his father, I think there are 16 of us in a row, and then we named our kid Gunner, so uh, we broke it off. Welcome. It is my show. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of it, always love hearing from you, except the crazy ones, 877 973 Seven four two five. I I am actually broadcasting um, from Jim's Deli today uh, here in Atlanta. <laughs> hey, in the studio with my board op and uh, the phone number. Well, I gave it to you. Now I'm sorry. I'm discombobulated because I've been reading these stories here, uh, trying to get show prep done. Stuck somewhat in Atlanta traffic, and I'm just I'm 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 shocked. I actually am somewhat uh, shocked that we are at the point that the Democrats think they are going to be able to do this and it's going to somehow work and do it by executive order and, and someone's not going to sue. Michael Brandon Darty, I'm talking about the, the student loan forgiveness. Michael Brandon Darty at National Review has this. The plan being molded by the Biden administration to cancel and forgive up to $1.6 trillion of federal student loan debt is a brazen act of class warfare by the affluent against everyone else. It is a politically and cosmically unjustifiable robbery that offers yet more rope for the decadent and totally indefensible American college system to become even more decadent and indefensible. The overwhelming majority of student debt is held by the affluent. Less than 10% of it is held by the bottom third of earners. Nearly 40% of it is held by students who earned advanced degrees, many of them now doctors and lawyers. Unemployment for the college educated is less than 2%. At every level... The American college system is deranged by the government guarantees and preferment extended to student debt. At the lowest end, schools take advantage of government guaranteed student loans to prey on service sector workers. They market a college education as a path of upward mobility while knowing that most of their students never graduate or simply return to the service industry after graduation. All that these colleges do is load five-figure earning students with debt, which is transformed into six-figure salaries for third-rate professors and administrators. In the great middle tier, the oceans of student debt have inspired colleges to become luxury resorts for the youth. They build endless recreational and athletic facilities. They install Baroque food courts in an appalling race to offer something first rate. These schools are increasingly trying to insert themselves as gatekeepers into fields such as turf management and catering, which never required college educations before. And, you know, now you've got this credentialed class. I forget who the philosopher was, but there was a philosopher who predicted that capitalism would go away and instead of socialism, we would get a credentialed class, a managerial class that would decide they could control everything. Um, and that, my friends, is the problem. I want to talk about this in real world terms. Uh, yep, here we go. I'm, I'm 
going to talk about my personal experience. I went to Mercer University undergraduate and law school. I got a fantastic scholarship to go to Duke University. And I wound up going and touring the campus and the people were not very nice. It's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Duke was beautiful. And there are times that I've regretted not going, but the people were very much like, you need us. We don't need you. It wasn't very friendly. And I was, had gone to a small school in Dubai, my school, I think my class had 26, 27 people in it. Uh, My graduating class from Jackson high school, a public school in rural Louisiana was 89 people. And I, my mom insisted I go on my dad's and my road trip. This is the, the road trip where I discovered Rush Limbaugh as well. We were looking for a Paul Harvey, and we found Rush. Never left him. And we went to Mercer University. It was in, in Macon, Georgia. I remember uh, we, we took a wrong turn. We were trying to get to the campus, and I saw this amazing, gorgeous building. Absolutely gorgeous. This is incredible. What is this building? It turned out it was the the administration building at Mercer. And I fell in love. The people were as nice as they could possibly be. I mean, they were genuinely nice people. They made me feel like they wanted me. It was everything you could hope to ask for. And I realized it wasn't a prestigious school, but I, I kind of – I've had my doubts, but but my original gut reaction was averted. If I get a good education, it doesn't matter where I go. If I go to get a get a good, get a good education, can't talk, can't talk, but I can think. <laughs> if I get a good education, it doesn't matter where I went, I could rise. This is America, after all, and it it proved to be true. And then I went to law school. Now I got a really good scholarship for undergrad. I I got uh, didn't get a full ride, but I got an almost full ride. And uh, my parents fairly well paid the rest of it. And then I got to law school. My college graduation, my dad announced he was retiring. I was on my own for law school. And I had to take out a bunch of loans. But, you know, the loans were based in large part, if you don't realize this, if you've never uh, taken your kids to – or sent your kids to college, your kids' ability to qualify for loans is in part based on the uh, income of the parents. And my dad uh, had a good income as he worked on an oil rig in the Middle East. And I didn't qualify for federal subsidized loans for law school in particular. And I had to take out loans. I am still paying all those loans. I haven't practiced law since 2006. And I've got another decade of paying off those loans. You may not realize this if you didn't go to law school, but in your first year in law school, you're not allowed to work. So you've got to come up with a way to make your living expenses. Now, there are people who do work, but technically you're not supposed to work. The American Bar Association discourages it. The law school discourages it. I did not work my first year in law school. So I had to have a loan to meet living expenses. And frankly, I'll be honest, I was one of those law school kids who used part of my loans to pay my golf course membership when I was in law school. I didn't get good at golf. I got great at day drinking. So I'm looking right now. Um, when I graduated from Mercy University, the, the cost, it was around, I want to say, forty fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year. Eh, maybe $35,000, $40,000 a year. That includes cost of living. Uh, I'm looking at Mercy University's law school rate right now. The tuition and fees is forty one thousand four hundred sixty eight dollars 
The actual cost of attendance is $60,560 on their own website. They factor in $900 a month in rent, $250 in utilities, $300 in food, $200 in transportation, $200 in personal. Uh, Books are $1,143. Average loan fee, $1,299. So total cost of attendance to go to law school at Mercer University, my alma mater, $60,560 a year. A year. Now, the bar passage rate uh, right now at Mercer University, and I don't mean to pick on Mercer, but it's where I win, and I want this to be real world. The bar passage rate right now, as of October 2020, is 83.2%. It was in the 70s there for a while. When I went, when I graduated, a class of 2000, the bar passage rate was, I think, 91%. So it's gone from 91% bar passage rate to right now 83.2%. It has been in the 70s in the last couple of years, I believe, from what I've been told by some of the students there. 98% of students who go to law school have to get student financial aid. You have a bar passage rate where roughly 20 to 25% of the kids aren't going to pass the first time. You're making them shell out $60,560. They're having to get student loans to do it. It's not a good investment. I don't mean to talk down my alma mater. I love my alma mater. Uh, I really do think that law school was brilliant for me, even though I don't practice law, because it really taught me how to think and research in ways I I didn't even I, – I wasn't even aware. It was great. But at the time – it was a 90-some-odd percent bar passage rate. I passed the bar exam the first go-round. It's not as good an investment when your bar passage rate is 80% and it's $60,000 to go. It's not a good investment, and they're not alone. They can call these things optional expenses, but they're, they're really not. If, you, if you're not allowed to work your first year, it's just it's, it's not a good deal. And people get student loans. Now, I will tell you, I got all those student loans, and I thought, you know what? I'm, I will get out, and I'll work. I'll get a good job. I wound up not working in Atlanta. My wife did not want to live in Atlanta. I did not want to work at one of the big law firms. I graduated with honors in law school. I wasn't on, on bar review, um, but I graduated with honors. I got a great job, but as an associate, out of the gate, I think I was making $43,000 a year. Our, my wife's and my combined student loan payments were more than our mortgage. And for a very long time, our loans, hers were paid off within a couple of years. I'm still working on mine. I pay like $400 a month. And I did consolidate refi. There were some deferrals in there because there were certain times when Christie's surgeries and medical bills were piling up. We couldn't make ends meet. I had to defer the student loans. So it's taken me longer. And now I make a good bit of money, and I don't have to worry about it. But it took a while to get there. My income now, though, is two-thirds of what it was just a few years ago, two-thirds less than what it was a few years ago. Done on TV, uh, not running Red State, all that sort of stuff. Gone away. Focus on radio. But it's a good salary, and I can do it. And what Joe Biden wants you and me to do now is to subsidize and take over the payment of the student loans of other people who are making six figures. That's his plan. Because those young six-figure salaries 
They're progressive Democrats. And Joe Biden needs them to have skin in the game. And the the concurrent side of this, the, the, the additional part of this, is that he's providing no incentive for a place like my alma mater, Mercy University, to cut its tuition. You're getting a bad investment. 20% of you who go there aren't going to pass the bar exam. You're going to shell out $60,000 a year to be there, according to their own data. And 20% of you aren't going to uh, pass the bar exam, roughly. And 98% of you are going to have to have debt, to go into debt to do it, where 20% of you aren't going to pass. It's not a good deal. It is objectively not a good deal. I'm sorry. I love my law school. I love my undergrad. Really, I love my undergrad more than my law school. But nonetheless, it's not a good investment. And there's no incentive for this law school or any university to reduce their tuition when the federal government is going to forgive the student loans of people who don't need their loans forgiven. Overwhelmingly, the people whose loans are going to be forgiven can pay their loans. They just don't want to. And it's going to cause inflation. It's going to cause massive, massive inflation as the government starts writing off these debts. And how does the government write off the debts? They don't actually make the the, the debt disappear. They transfer the burden of paying it from the person who owes it to the person who does it. And how does this breed responsibility when you know the government is going to forgive your debt? I mean, more people are going to go in debt, and what, 20 years from now we're going to do this all over again? Hey, let's forgive these debts too. You take away the incentive for people to meet their debt obligation. It's terrible public policy. It is really bad public policy. The people whose debts will be forgiven have the money to pay them. They don't want to pay them. You're disincentivizing colleges and and graduate schools from lowering the cost of tuition. You are disincentivizing people from honoring their contractual obligations to meet their debts and live responsibly to do so. You are completely throwing out of whack the entire financial system that undergirds this country, and you're putting the burden on people who should not have the burden put on them. In fact, you're putting the burden on the lower middle class taxpayers who can least afford it. But it's an election year and Joe Biden's polling is in the tank and they're desperate and desperation leads them to a really stupid policy that will wreck the economy. That, my friends, is the inappropriate, inexcusable situation that we are in right now with the Democrats and Joe Biden. Well, a little bit of breaking news. It just happened about two minutes ago. I want to play you this audio. It just came through from C-SPAN. And now, uh, as many of you may know, uh, Justice Breyer has announced his retirement from the court, effective when we rise for the summer recess. That means that the oral argument we have just concluded is the last the court will hear with Justice Breyer on the bench. For 28 years, this has been his arena for remarks profound and moving, questions challenging and insightful, and hypotheticals downright silly. (laughs) This sitting alone has brought us radioactive muskrats and John the Tiger Man. Now, at the appropriate time, we will, in accordance with tradition and practice, 
read and enter into the record an exchange of letters between the court and Justice Breyer marking his retirement. For now, we leave the courtroom with deep appreciation for the privilege of sharing this bench with him. Thank you. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday, the 2nd of May at 3 p.m. That was the end. Uh, the court has its decisions now to issue, but we'll have no more oral arguments this year. Uh, all of the oral arguments have now been concluded, barring emergencies. Today was the last day Justice Breyer sat on the bench asking questions of lawyers. From here on out, we get a lot of opinions, some of which will be very big, including the Dobbs opinion in Mississippi. At the next hour, top of the next hour, the second hour, there are three hours of the show. And in the second hour, we're going to talk about the Dobbs decision because the Democrats are starting to freak out about it. Now, I want to take your phone calls. When we come back, lines are open. I've only got about a minute here. Uh, the phone number is 877-973-7425. But uh, in the meantime, uh, before we get there, I got to tell you, word is coming out today, and we'll spend some time on this as well when we come back. Uh, it turns out Nancy Pelosi is furious, furious with Joe Biden, like livid with him over Title 42 repeal. Uh, she is deeply, deeply upset that they have mishandled this and that they have put a, a real um, problem in place for the Democrats Title 42 was not working. We need a better plan. And I think that's what Secretary Mayorkas will be presenting to us with her public statements. Behind the scenes, she says the Biden White House walked the Democrats right into the Republicans' trap, that there was no way this had to be done. It was inexcusable because they knew this would put vulnerable Democrats at risk. And that they never came up with a viable plan in which to solve the issue. Nancy Pelosi really upset with Joe Biden's White House, and she hates Ron Klain. When we come back, multiple banks are coming out and telling people, hey, a recession is coming. And the markets, well, they're not liking what they're hearing, although they're doing a little better today than they were. We'll get into all of this and take your calls when we come back. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson across the nation from Atlanta, Georgia, where the weather is lovely today. Not for long. They're saying super hot this summer in the southeast, allegedly, and probably dry. The phone number, if you would like to be on the program, 877-973-7425. I am going to start the phone calls now. Uh, we are going to go first to Kenny. Welcome to the program. Kenny, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you, sir? Great. Hey, I just had a question. What you think might happen to the labor force if they start uh, taking care of the education costs? Um, say you're a young person trying to decide whether to go into college or join an apprenticeship program uh, to work physically when the labor uh, force, usually that education or apprenticeship program is generally usually paid for by your employer. Um, so what motivation would a young person have to, say, do a labor versus go to college and have a desk job? Where's the motivation there? And what's it going to do to 
cost to repair, you know, your home or your business. Yeah, you know, I don't have the answer to that, but it does it does make me wonder uh, what exactly the situation is going to be there. I, I don't know that they have really thought out the ramifications here. Uh, now, and look, I got to say something because because I got an email uh, that um, that um, not everyone wanting their loans paid off are rich elites. Many of us are making teacher. Many of us are teachers making payments on loans and having a portion of them paid off. Uh, listen, y'all, y'all got to listen to me on the data. Ninety percent of the loans to be paid off are for people who make six figures or more, according to the Wall Street Journal. That means yes, there are ten percent who are less than that. My philosophical objection is just because you as a teacher think your job is for the public good, uh, I should not have to pay off your loan. Should I pay off your mortgage as well? Because if you're happy at night in your home and not stressed about your mortgage, you might give my kids a good education. You took out the loan. That's the issue here. You obligated yourself to make the payment. I should not now have to pay it for you against my will. I don't dispute some of you have jobs in the public interest, but you took out the loan. I didn't take out the loan. Why should I have to pay for it? I already pay your salary with my property taxes. Why should I have to pay for your loan as well? You can call me heartless there, but you are the one who obligated yourself to the loan. I don't mean to be disrespectful. I'm just pointing out you signed the paperwork, not me. More importantly, though, you're in the minority here. You're in the 10%. The 90%, according to the Wall Street Journal, are people who make over six figures. Do you make six figures? Well, then let's focus on that. Is it fair to pay off the student loans of people who make six figures? I, that, that, that's what this is about. I'm not making that figure up. That is the documented figure in the newspaper. So that's the issue. Now, Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Nina, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the program. Hi. Um, while I don't disagree with you in a lot of ways, um, I do kind of disagree with the Wall Street Journal. I mean, granted, um, I would say that a lot of the people who took out large student loans um, make six figures. Um, they're also paying debts back that are well over six figures. That's that's the first part of the puzzle. The second part of the puzzle is um, I don't make six figures. I'm retired. I had to retire because of issues at home. I was um, eight years into the public student service public student service student loan forgiveness, and um, I have a seventy-two thousand dollars student loan debt that um, I don't know. It would be a blessing for my husband and I if we didn't have to worry about that debt at this age in our lives. Oh, look, I, I, I agree with you there that it would be. Um, but also, I, you, you took out the loan. I mean, and I, I, I'm sympathetic to the issue, Nina, that y'all, you, you took out the loan and life circumstances have changed. I, I totally get that. I do. I'm not heartless in that regard. But you took out the loan. But also, again, I don't think we should diminish the fact that we are, in most cases, talking about high-income earners. 
for giving their loans, not your loans. You don't make that money. You're in the 10%. 90% are going to be above 600, not $600,000 in loans, but making, um, I'm sorry, not six figures in loans. They're making, their income is six figures. And listen, I, I get it. Our circumstances in life change. One day you're on top and one day you're on the bottom and you got all this debt. And the government doesn't look at your circumstances now. They looked at the circumstances then. But I just I I, I gotta I gotta understand. I, I got you guys to understand that government should not act as Santa Claus for you. Government should not free you from your contractual obligations. And I know it sucks and it's unfair and it sure would be a blessing. I wish I won the lottery tomorrow. I wish someone would forgive my student loans. Mine aren't going to be forgiven under this program, by the way, because mine are uh, private, non-subsidized student loans. So I will still have my uh, $70,000, $80,000 of debt left to pay. But y'all, I mean, this is this is having the government be Santa Claus. And here's the problem. Inflation. You get the government to pour this money in to forgiving the loans. You redirect the payments. You're going to cause inflation. I mean, you're struggling right now in large part because of inflation. You're going to struggle more if they do this. I mean, but personal responsibility has to play a role in this. Having government absolve you of your personal responsibility induces more lack of personal responsibility. Maybe not for you, but for someone else. Rick, you're going to be up next. My call, my call screener, Rick, by the way, says you have to be the last call on on student loans. He doesn't want me to keep talking to you people. <laughs> okay. Welcome. How you doing today? I'm good. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad. I just I had done a rant about a year and a half ago regarding student loans and looked up how much of it was owned by the government and how much of it was owned by personal, you know, like you just mentioned about yourself, that it wouldn't be forgiven. And, you know, it was going to add somewhere around $1.3 trillion to the national debt if they forgave them all. But my point was, what happens after you forgive these loans? Does the government then go, well, we know school student loans don't work. What are we going to do in the future? Well, maybe we'll just have to take over running the colleges. And at that point, the colleges go, well, you know, this is guaranteed payment. We can't plunk anybody. We can't you know, have anybody drop out. So we're going to pass everybody on through. Um, there's just no incentive to do it. Why not just do something like just forgive the interest and let the people pay just the loan back and get rid of the interest? Yeah, look, I, I mean, there's a good solution. Um, if, if we're to go down this road, get rid of the interest payments so the people still have to pay back what they borrowed. Uh, but but not the interest. Uh, I, you would probably find a number of people who would say, okay, this is reasonable uh, given the situation we're in, in in debt. But to have people just say, no, we don't have to pay our debts anymore. Yeah, that's bad. And, and y'all, you've got to understand what one of the issues here is that in doing this, it may benefit you individually, but is it good for all of us because of what's going to happen? One, inflation, but also Colleges then have no incentive, none, to reduce the cost of tuition. 
And one of the biggest issues here is that college tuition in the United States has outpaced inflation by double digits. The amount of people in this country who are uh, going to colleges where it just the costs keep going up and going up and going up and going up, uh, irrespective of inflation or people's ability to pay, because colleges know you can get a student loan and not have to pay. This is something, if you've never done this, you probably don't understand this. If you get a student loan, you do not pay a penny while you're in college. You don't pay a penny. You don't feel the burden of the debt until you're out of college, and then it all comes at you. And so colleges have no incentive because you're in college and you're not paying on these loans. You you don't notice. You don't care. It's a problem. Susan, you're going to be up next. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Two things um, that people don't think about, uh, or they should, is first of all, if you're considering going in, what field you're going, considering going into if you're going to go to college, um, you ought to really research what you're going to make when you get out mm-hmm. and, and, and think about, gee, you know, is, is that loan ratio going to be, you know, am I going to be able to pay it? And, and second of all, um, so many people I know, I mean, when I went to college, it was very unusual for someone to go out of state. Mm-hmm. And in my class for people I knew in my high school class. Um, and so many kids want to go out of state, you know, they, they want the total college experience or whatever. And, and the parents don't, you know, they don't have the guts to say no and say, look, you need to get a Hope scholarship, go in state, go to community college for two years. That's what I did. And then I transferred to a four-year school. Uh, this is out in Oregon. I went to Oregon State. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, kids don't want to do that because maybe it's not as cool. But uh, it's you know, and I still spent ten years paying my loans back. I didn't get any money from my parents. Right. They couldn't afford it. Yeah. And people need to tell their kids no. You can't go out of state, or if you want, you're going to have to pay for it, kid. Yeah, look, I, I mean, people got to make tough choices, particularly in this economy. We've had a good run of it for a while now, but suddenly we're we're not anymore, and it's a problem. But I don't know that it's one the rest of us suddenly take on the burden because of what other people did. Rodney, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the program. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me on. First time caller, long time listener. Love your show. Love Thank what you. you do. So, all right. Uh, well, I just I just kind of caught the uh, the topic here on your show, and the the interest on the loan is mm-hmm. my big concern. My wife's a nurse. She's been paying on her loan for about a decade mm-hmm. and still owes about 70, 80% of the term. And she's already paid, you know, that we've, we've looked at the numbers and we've already paid this loan off technically once. Mm-hmm. And it's just, uh, I think if they need to do something about the terms of interest. Yeah, and for those charge, who don't know what Rodney's talking about, let me give you this. If you take a, an undergraduate subsidized loan from the government, the interest rate is 3.73%. If you go to graduate school, professional school, it's 5.28%. If you're on a loan with your parents where your parents uh, co-sign with you, the interest rate is 6.28%. Um, that is from studentaid.gov. That Those are the federal rates between July 1st, 2021 and July 1st, 2022. So, yeah, I, I mean, there's clearly an interest there, uh, particularly when your mortgages and everything else are so low even right now. Um, th- th- those are high interest rates and they're burdensome to people. And there's probably an issue there where maybe retroactively cut the rates 
but don't just forgive the loans and transfer the burden to other people. That, I think, is, is just one of the big issues. Byram, you're going to be the last caller here. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Great show. Thank you. Um, not an original idea, but Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs says, why are we just bailing out student loans? Why not the trucker? Why not the HVAC worker that borrows $150,000 to go into business? And yeah. I mean, where do we stop and where does socialism stop? Yes. And, and, you know, one of the big distinguishing things here is the president, uh, the Democrats would argue. And by the way, Joe Biden last year said he did not have the power to do this and he's changed his mind. Uh, they can only do this for people who took out federal loans. So it, they can't do it for you. They can't do it for me because my loans were through the program, but they're um, they're not federally subsidized. This is this is such a bad idea. The amount of inflation it's going to cause, among other things, it's going to be ruinous to the economy. Now, if your air is ruined because of your pets or you got smoky odors or the like, there's a way to solve that. If only the Eden Pure thunderstorm could solve this issue. Uh, Eden Pure can solve the stinky issues in your house, the pollen, the mold, the bacteria, the mildew. It can solve the issue of your uh, stinky odors. It actually eliminates the odors. It doesn't mask them. And you can get three of them for less than $200 by going to EdenPureDeals.com. EdenPureDeals.com. You'll be met with a discount code box right when you get to the website. And you put in ERIC3, E-R-I-C-K-3. And you um, you put that in. You'll see the Eden Pure Thunderstorm 3-pack. You'll get them for less than $200. You'll get all three of them saving $200, and you get free shipping. It's EdenPureDeals.com. The discount code is ERIC3. You get three of them for less than $200, and you can thank me later when your air no longer stinks. This hour of the program is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. If you are in charge of the finances of a business and you want to become a big business, First Liberty can help you reach out to them. FirstLibertyGA.com. FirstLibertyGA.com. Spend 10 minutes with them. See if they're a good fit for you. You're a good fit for them. Tell them I sent you. They'll help you. Uh, Good people, the Frost family. My gosh, they are such good people. FirstLibertyGA.com. All right. We got to move on to other things. Y'all, I'm afraid that we are about to see a massive wave of death and destruction in this country from COVID. I'm afraid uh, all of us are about to die or at least be miserable because Dr. Fauci now has declared we're out of the pandemic. And if Dr. Fauci says we're out of the pandemic, I'm a little bit concerned um, it's actually good, and, and there are speculations that this is probably him now signaling he's about to step aside and retire. Good. Um, I just, you know, I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt when this thing started. Uh, goodwill and trust, and he kind of abused that trust. And um, it's probably best that he go away now. It sounds like he's going to start going away. Um, there are epidemiologists and experts out there who are concerned that uh, COVID could mutate again and we're not, we're, our guard is going to be down and we're going to have problems. But honestly, I don't care. I'm, I'm ready to move on. I got to take a flight in a couple of weeks, uh, assuming I'm allowed, which apparently I will be hopefully by then. Um, so I, I got to have a, uh, just so, some like standard test stuff done. 
but uh, they didn't want me to be on a plane because of pressure changes and stuff. So I got to get everything done before I get on a flight in a couple of weeks, which is fine. It'll happen. But um, it's just kind of weird to think about. Uh, nonetheless, um, I get to be on a plane without a mask on for the first time in two years. And I'm really excited by that. Uh, but I got to go to New York. And I am told that when you get to New York, you have to put a mask on when you get there. So you don't have to wear a mask in the Atlanta airport. You don't have to wear a mask on the airplane. But you do because local governments are still trying to exercise uh, this control over us based on the fear of COVID, which is ridiculous. And now Dr. Fauci is saying the pandemic has come to an end. Why won't they let go? They're scared. I really, yeah, I, I understand the, the control issue. I really think it's because these people are scared. Particularly in New York and California, they had such a high death toll to begin with. I think they're scared. Uh, and they also don't think you're very smart. And they don't think that you have your best interest at heart or their best interest at heart. And and if they didn't have so much contempt for you and me, they would finally be letting us live our lives. It's great here. Uh, I uh, came to my office and the, everything's back to normal and people are in the office and there's no mask mandate. So you get to see people's smiles and scowls at the same time. You can tell who doesn't like you in the office. <laughs> finally. There's no mendacity left because we're all exposed again with our faces, which is a good thing. When we come back, the Supreme Court has done with oral arguments for the year. Now they got to release their opinions. And what are they going to do with Roe v. Wade? There are warning signs for Democrats. They're starting to get scared. They're starting to think they haven't done enough to make you scared. And we should talk about that when we come back.